I wanted to uh, say to Dexter, who led our, us in corporate prayer, that was a very God-centered prayer and a blessing. And I remember Dexter coming to our uh, vertical prayer night, and uh, he just offered an extemporaneous prayer. And it was one of those where I kind of opened my eyes like, whoa, who just prayed that prayer? And uh, it's been a joy to see Dexter growing. He's a student uh, at Moody Bible Institute. He's training for ministry, and I hear the, uh, the preacher's voice in him as he prays. And uh, if you can stir people in prayer, you can probably preach. And I see that in Dexter, and we're cheering for you, okay? We're cheering for you. I want you to know that. Uh, I also uh, want to uh, say a greeting to our uh, Crown Point campus and uh, I'm going to be preaching in, at our Cedar Lake campus. And uh, so I'm coming to Crown Point by video. So love to all of you. And I hope this message is a blessing. You don't have to be around the church very long before you begin to hear questions in the backwaters of the church, in the underground of the church. Questions like this. Uh, so-and-so... Did such and such, and they call themselves a Christian? Or maybe you've had this experience where somebody at your work finds out that you go to the same church as their neighbor, there's somebody, and they're like, what? They go to your church? I never would have thought they went to church anywhere. And you're like, oh, how do you respond to that? How do you think about that? What do you say? Or how about this? So-and-so, yeah, they grew up in the church, but you know what? It's been years since they've had any interest in religion at all. Uh, is that person going to heaven? Is that person saved? And so these kinds of things happen quietly. We try not to talk about it publicly, although we are, we are this weekend. Uh, and, and it leaves us with this kind of wondering, doesn't it? Like, well, what about that? What about the person who makes profession of being a Christian, you know, etc. And yet those that know them know that there is this category of their life that is in absolute consistent contradiction to their confession of Christianity. Or what do you say about the person like I have in my own life that uh, I grew up going to uh, youth group with and was in church with and, and uh, you know, Christian school with, whatever, and now for the last 25 years, no interest in spiritual things. What do you say about that individual? Is so-and-so going to heaven? Can so-and-so be a Christian and still be doing that? Well, today we're going to be talking about the relationship between the Christian and sin. And what those, what those compatibilities or incompatibilities mean about the real condition of our hearts before God. And our text is bringing us to this, to this question. We're working our way through 1 John. And we're at a passage of Scripture, actually, that I, I recently had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with a well-known uh, radio Bible teacher. All of you probably would know this individual. 
And he, uh, he, where are you, what are you preaching through? And I said, well, I'm preaching through first John. And he immediately went to the passage we're looking at right now and said, well, how do you interpret that text? And he wanted to talk about these verses that we have in front of us. None of the other ones that we've already seen or any of the ones we're going to see. He wanted to talk about the ones we have in front of us. And the reason that he wanted to is that these are probably the most difficult verses in 1 John. Possibly the most, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but they're the most challenging and the most rigorous. And so Bible teachers want to talk about the tough passages, and we have one in front of us. It's tough to interpret, and the applications are very uncomfortable. I'll just tell you that right now, okay? So, with that said, let me read God's Word, read the text here, and then we'll get into it and see what it has to say. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4-10, through 10, and it's a little bit of a longer section. Okay, a little bit of a longer section, but hang in there. The application will be, will be worth it. I begin reading now in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Speaking of Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God help us understand and apply this challenging text that we have in front of us, and perhaps some of you are already uncomfortable. And I think this will be one that should challenge all of us. What I want to do, the way I want to tackle this, is I want to, I want to explain carefully verse 9. Verse 9 is the key that unlocks the meaning of the rest of the, of the, of the section there. So let's focus on verse 9 and see if that isn't the case. What does it say? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now remember, this chapter begins with that wonderful verse, chapter 3, verse 1, where it talks about the fact that we are God's adopted children. We talked about the astonishing love of God where he goes... Uh, beyond, if I say merely, saving us and forgiving us our sins and giving us eternal life, restoring a relationship with him, he takes it like to a whole nother level and goes ahead and he adopts us into his family. So that now we relate to God, not merely as Savior, but also as our Abba, as our Dada, as our Heavenly 
Father, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. As Christians, God is now not our judge in the sense of condemning. He now is our heavenly Father. Remember that? Okay. Now, what John does here is he builds a case for what difference being children of God ought to make in the contours and in the directions of our moral lives. Does it mean something to be a child of God or not? Does that change the way that you live in some way or not? And if it does, how and why? That's what this passage is is getting at. Now notice that he says here that no one can continue to sin because God's seed is in him. And that word there for seed, it's the ancient word for the father's contribution in reproduction. Okay? It is, it is seed. But in what way would God the father's seed be in us? And even on this point, there are people that, that debate it. It, it. it could really mean, I would say, one of three things. Uh, it could mean God's word or the gospel is the seed of God that is in us that brings about transformation. It could be the Spirit of God that is in us, that brings about regeneration. Or what I think is a combination of both of those. That to be a child of God is not merely me saying, or not me saying, God saying, hey, you're my child. It is actually the Word of God, that powerful, creating Word of God through the gospel of Jesus that is planted in the heart of the sinner and by the power of the spirit of god there is a birth that takes place and the fruit of that birth is a new nature it is in a sense a new me i have something that i did not have before i am alive spiritually i have the very life of god by the spirit through the gospel produced within me it is the life of god within the sinner and many passages talk about this here are a few ezekiel 36 prophesied about the day when god would do this and i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you or titus 3 5 he saved us Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't earn this. This is not something that, hey, look at me. I'm a child of God. I have the new nature. How did this come to me? But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's that born again language, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so salvation then is, it is, it is a transformational new life. It is a new birth. The doctrinal word is regeneration and its fruit is an entirely new life that I have within me. A spiritual life birthed by birthed by God. Now, I've spent the last two Saturdays at St. Anthony's Hospital attending uh, birthing classes. And I will tell you that it might be better to not know what you don't know. 
I've seen some things. If I never see that again, it's fine with me, all right? And I mentioned this last weekend, and I had all kinds of people come up to me. Oh, Pastor Steve, once she's there, it's so worth it. It's fine. It's good. You won't, you won't, you won't worry about all of the disturbing things that you see on the way to that baby being there. That new life is so wonderful, right? It is to be celebrated. It is a new life. And Christian, in a way that we can't actually totally observe and see, like you go to a birthing class, when you became a Christian and you offered that prayer of confession and you believed and trusted in Jesus, God did something you couldn't do. God did something within you that you can't see. He made you alive. Spiritually, you, be, you came alive. You were dead. So was I in trespasses and sin. I was born dead. But God birthed a new me, a new nature, a new heart. And with that heart, desires that I never had before now come alive, animated by the Holy Spirit within me and creating in me an entirely new life. Okay? It's the power of God. Only God could do it. You could sit there and you can, you can say your prayer or you can walk on your knees and, and pray up the steps and you can read your Bible a thousand times and you can't do what God can do like that. And that's what he does in salvation. Boom. We are made alive. And we will be alive forever. It is the miracle of regeneration. In fact, David Needham calls us miracle children of the Almighty God. If you are a Christian, you are a miracle child. Something only God could do. Now, does that mean that unbelievers, unregenerate, can't do good things? No. They do good things all the time. They're good neighbors, they're good citizens, they're good moms, they're good dads, good friends. But the Bible says that apart from this new birth, I am spiritually dead. And the basic inclination of my heart is not towards the things of God and fulfilling the will of God. It is away from that. I am inclined to sin. I am inclined to delighting in carnal things. That's where my heart is drawn. But in salvation, I get a heart now that is no longer drawn towards the carnal things. It is drawn towards the will of God. It is drawn towards delighting in God and loving Him and pleasing Him. I have this new nature that takes me this direction, not this direction. Now the Bible says that I still got the remnant of that old nature. But I am a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul writes, a dramatic change within me. This is regeneration. Now, have you ever noticed how children will resemble their parents? I'm sure that you've seen this, especially if you think about fathers and sons, okay? 
So if you think about a father, you think about a son, sometimes you don't even have to know that they're father and son. I have this, I have this at times. I meet families, new people to the church, and, and you know, here's dad, and then there's somebody standing next to him, and I don't even have to ask, oh, this is your son. Now, how do I know that this is the son? Because you take one look at dad, and you take one look at the son, and you're like, okay, I, kinda, I get it. I know, I know what this is all about. His face is similar. His you know, he's, he's tall, he's, he's short, he's uh, thin, he's wide, he's, you know, his, the way he holds himself or whatever. There, you could see a son, sometimes you see a son walking, you know, somewhere and you know the dad. And you're like, he, he walks just like his dad. His gait is just like his dad. And so, uh, and this goes beyond just the physical. This can go to personality things. Dad's quiet, he's quiet. Dad's loud, he's loud. Uh, you know, dad loves the Cubs. He loves the Cubs and these kinds of things that are passed on. However, they're passed on. (laughs) Some of it's DNA. Some of it is caught, no doubt. But the way that we summarize that is we say what? Like father, like that was weak, like father, like, okay, I want you to know you're with me here. I want you to get this. You can look at the son and you can know what the father is like, right? The father The imprint of his person is set upon the son. Not perfectly, right? Uh, Much to many fathers' chagrin uh, as the son has things that that are different than dad and he's not into what dad's into. It's not perfect. It's not one for one. It's not exact. But there is this very strong tendency for the son to resemble the father, like father, like son. And that is basically what John is saying in this passage. We are children, miracle children of the Almighty God, who is holy and set against sin. And spiritually, we are birthed within, we are birthed spiritually within us, a new nature, a God nature. Not that we're gods, but we are like God in terms of the directions and the desires of our hearts which no longer are toward from the, towards the carnal but towards the towards what is holy towards the things that please god like father like like son now with that let's come to the central question of this text what does it mean here that no christian will continue to sin Let me read it again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now here's the challenge of this passage and probably why this radio preacher brought it up is that there is not one interpretation that gives safe harbor from any uh, hermeneutical problem. In other words, all of them have something that doesn't quite Work And there's many attempts to try to explain this. For example, uh, one attempt would say this. This is a passage that is not actually attainable. It is just simply meant to inspire us. Which I don't like that one. That seems to me to be a, uh, just sort of a, a silly one. It certainly doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. That could be one way that you would take this. That a Christian doesn't sin. But... He's already said in chapter 1, verse 8 and chapter 1, verse 10, that if anyone claims to be without sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. 
So it can't mean that. And there are many other, uh, I think I feel the commentaries put out nine different possible interpretations of this, of this text. I'm going to tell you what I think it means because it's consistent with what the Bible says elsewhere. I think what John is doing here is he is answering the false teachers who had infiltrated into the church and who had made claims that they were without sin. But everybody knew what they were actually all about. And clearly, morally, they were not without sin. They were inclined to sin. And they had simply dumbed down the definition of sin so that they could say that. If you you put the bar low enough, everyone's a high jumper, right? And if you put the bar of sin low enough, everyone's sinless. We're all good. We're all good. And that is why in verse 4 he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. What is that about? Well, sin, we're more comfortable or more familiar with what sin is. And there are different definitions. I'll give you this one. The failure to live according to God's holy character and law. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of God's, of the glory of God, of God's law, of the glory of his character. Nobody, none of us have, have attained that. So sin, we, uh, we understand. But what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is my heart's active rebellion against the law of God, of which sin is the expression of that. So it is a heart that is hostile to God, that is an enemy of God, that doesn't want to glorify God, and therefore it seizes upon the law, and it wants to do what the law says it shouldn't do, or it doesn't want to do what the law says it should do. That is lawlessness. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. That is the way every one of us were born. We are born apart from God. We are born dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And that, you know, that little baby that's coming, cute sinner. I have nieces and nephews. They are born in sin. I know. I've done a little babysitting over the years. Hostile. So lawlessness is the heart against the law and against the lawgiver. Sin is the acting upon it. And I've told this story before, but it fits so well. I want to tell it again. My family growing up, we, uh, we had a couple horses. It was like a hobby of my dad. We would show, show horses. And, and so we always would have a couple horses. And when, when we got into horses, dad had to build a fence to keep the horses in. And so dad built an electric fence. And uh, after he got the whole thing up and running, he got my brother, Scott. Now, he might have got the rest of us. I don't know. I've got three siblings, but he was especially thinking about Scott. And uh, Scott now, by the way, is a, is a pastor. So uh, he was a very mischievous little boy. Uh, some would call him naughty. And uh, so I just want to say to all you children that are here right now that are disobeying your parents, you keep that up and you're going to end up a pastor. Okay, so... <laughs> One more reason to start obeying and honoring your father and your mother. So anyway, my parents got my, my brother Scott and took him up to the electric fence. And my dad said to my brother Scott, 
If you touch that fence, it will hurt. Don't touch the fence. Got it? My brother's like four or whatever. Right? So my parents walk away, and by my dad's own testimony, he said to my mom, watch this. They had no more God around the corner. And what do they hear? Ah! There's my brother Scott, screaming out in pain. Now I want to take that moment in theological slow motion. Okay, so let's go back to the time where mom and dad are standing there with Scott in front of the electric fence. Dad says to Scott, don't touch the fence. In that moment, my brother Scott, Pastor Scott DeWitt, everything in him now wanted to touch the fence. If my parents would have said, touch the fence, we require you to touch it all the time every day, he would never have wanted to touch the fence again, right? But now that they've told him not to touch the fence, Within the heart of the four-year-old boy, every, every piston was firing, every desire was there. It was wanting to touch the fence. Why? Because his heart was hostile to the law and hostile to the lawgivers. And so in that moment, in slow motion, he grabbed the wire. I must and I will touch the wire. And if my brother's soul could have spoken in that moment, it would have been saying th- things like this Look at me! I'm free! Nobody can tell me not to do something! I'm God! Right? But all they heard was, Ah! What did my brother Scott need? He needed. A new nature. Because the nature that he had, lawlessness and sin. And it played out in that way. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Friends, Christians may and will sin. We all know that. But it is not now as Christians our nature to do so. We are acting against our nature. When I, prior to salvation, when I sin, I am acting according to my nature. But now as a Christian, I am acting against this new nature that God has placed within me. And therefore... I cannot, as a Christian, and I will not, continue in what, the, what uh, the ESV calls habitual and reckless sin. I will not do that. I can't. Why? Because I am born of God. I have a nature within me that will not allow me to continue. There's the key there. I will not continue in sin. Will I sin? Yes. And let me say something else. All too often, we view that statement right there as cover for us. And we say things like, oh, well, we all know Christians won't sin, or Christians sin. So I sinned, okay, I confess it, and on I go. No! 
The Bible says that we are to abhor what is evil. And for us to somehow, like, okay immoral activities on our part, as long as I don't continue in it, or somehow to look at others and go, oh, it's no big deal. That is not the call of the Scriptures. We are called to holiness. We are called to want to do what is right. And yes, we have this other nature in us. And yes, we will have it till the day that we die. But that is, that is a, in a, an explanation. It is not an excuse in the eyes of God. And I don't want anybody here to walk out of here saying, well, hey, we all sin, so I'm good. I'll just keep going. No. Every sin is insanity. It is a destroyer. It is against the will of God. It is against the pleasure of God. And it is fundamentally against the nature that God has placed within me. And so we must be humble as we think about this, right? Not to become like, oh, we should nobody else, or to say it on the one side, we all sin, so it's no big deal when I do. And on the other side, to say, uh, we'll never sin and there's no grace and hope if you do. Both of those are not right. We are to hate sin like God does and cherish and tremble at the fact that God in his grace will forgive it. That's where you want to land it. Okay. Now, so what about this whole two different nature thing? This, this desire that I now have to live a life that's pleasing to God. And I'd like to illustrate it this way. It's, it's like the difference between uh, sheep and pigs. Okay? Sheep and pigs. You're like, man, is this a farming church? We've heard about horses. We've heard now about sheep. We've heard about pigs. It's Indiana. Okay? So just bear with me. The difference between... Sheep and pigs. Did you know that both sheep and pigs get muddy and dirty? Both of them do. They experience that mud differently, though. A sheep will get muddy, but it wants to be clean. A pig will sometimes be clean, but it can't wait to be muddy again, right? They both can be muddy, but their experience of the mud is entirely different. Now, imagine with me for a second that on the farm, you're all farmers, okay? You all own a farm. You're on the farm and, uh, and it just, it rains and it rains and it rains, in your farm, you've got a barn, and outside that barn, you've got a pen. And, and because of the rain, it just gets muddier and muddier and muddier. So much mud, in fact, that you go out there one day, and there is in the muddy pen, there is an animal that is encased in mud. It's so deep in the mud, it's so encased in the mud, all you see is two little eyes sticking out, right? And you look at that, and you think, what animal, what is this in the mud? I can't even tell what it is. So you go back to the farmhouse and you make a call to the veterinarian. And you get on the phone with the veterinarian and you say, Doc, it's been raining cats and dogs. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting every animal in that I can. It's been raining and raining and I've got mud at my farm and the pen is so muddy. I went out there and there is an animal in the pen. It's so encased in mud. I don't know what it is. 
The doctor says, what kind of animals do you have at your farm? You say, I have sheep and I have pigs. And the doctor thinks for a moment and he says, how long has this animal stayed in the mud? And you say, it's been raining for days. It's been in the mud for days. The doctor, without having to think, says, well, I can tell you, it's a pig. But you say, I talked with the animal, actually, and I asked him what he was, and he said he was a sheep. And the doctor would say, he can say what he wants, but if he's been in the mud that long, there's no way that he's a sheep. He's a pig. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Or if I can interpret the passage this way. No sheep makes a practice of staying in the mud. He's a sheep and cannot stay in the mud because he was born a sheep. By this it is evident who are sheep and who are pigs. Whoever stays in the mud is a pig. Christians, we're children of God. We have a new nature. It's like It's like God turning the pig into a sheep, if you want to look at it this way. And now with this new nature, we don't want to be sinful. We don't want to be muddy. Do we get muddy? Yes. But it's not our nature. And we will not stay in the mud. We will not continue to sin. Why? Because we're such great people? No, because God's seed, his DNA, his nature, this new birth is within us. And we cannot continue in sin. Like father, like son. Right? Sheep, not pigs. This is how Jesus can say it in Matthew 17. By their fruit you shall know them. Now, I don't want anybody here to be thinking to yourself, well, i got to clean myself up so that I can make sure that I'm a sheep. No! You don't clean yourself. The pig can take a shower and, and shave and put on cologne. and I mean, if I could even push this further, the sheep could even, I mean, he can, he can eat bacon till he's green in the face. Did I say that right? No, I mixed up my metaphor. (laughs) The pig can eat euros (laughs) and lamb chops until he's sick. But he can't make himself a sheep. God makes a sheep. Okay? God does it. And on the other side of it, we don't go, look at me, I've become a sheep. We're like, give glory to God, right? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
and can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is a God thing. There's no glory in it for us. But the fruit of it is that we are changed. Not into sinless perfection, but into a kind of sanctification where I will not continue in habitual and reckless sin. I can't. My nature won't let me, and God, my Father, won't let me. One commentator, this is so good, I want to read it. The apostle asserts with absolute clarity that those who live in habitual sin have not seen Christ and do not know Christ. This is the same as saying they do not have a saving relationship with Christ. On the other hand, those who abide in him live a life marked by habitual righteousness and purity instead of lawlessness and disobedience. While the unbeliever lives in sin and has not seen or known Christ, the believer has terminated a life of sin for a life of abiding in him. The child of God has experienced a decisive break with sin. Sin no longer controls his life. And that's why we can have a ministry like Celebrate Recovery and to stand in front of people with uh, hurts, hang-ups, and habits from the past and to say, Christ will set you free. And why I can stand in front of you here tonight and say, there is way more power that God has than control that sin has in your life. And God wants to set you free. This is why Christ died, was to set you free. And he can, and he will. And he'll do it by giving you a new set of desires, a new nature, birthed by the Spirit of God within you. And you'll be a sheep the rest of your life. Now, I just want to break this down. Four reasons Christians will not continue in reckless and habitual sin. First of all, God's spiritual DNA is within them. That is the point here. If you look at chapter 2, verse 29, which I didn't read, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 10, all of it is emphasizing the fact that we have been born of God. And again, there's no bragging in this. And if you leave here tonight and you're like, well, those people think they're holy and they're all up on themselves because they are. You are not hearing that from me. I am a sinner. Left to myself, I would wallow in the immoral mud for the rest of my life. I am a sinner. It is only by the grace of God through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and a personal faith and trust in Jesus that God has set me free from a life in the mud. And if you're a Christian, that is your testimony too. We don't even know how bad our life would have been if God would not have come and set us free. There is no bragging in this. It is all glory to God, amen? But this is true. Like father, like son. We will resemble increasingly the Holy Father that we have been, from whom we have been birthed. And the moral and the spiritual 
contours of our life, the decisions that we make, the temptations that we fight, will increasingly resemble the moral desires of our Heavenly Father. We are becoming more like our Heavenly Father. And if this is not the case, and if it's actually uh, the other direction, then just like the, the veterinarian hearing from the farmer, he says he's a sheep, but he wants to stay in the mud. That's a pig. That's, that's pigs want to be in the mud. And unbelievers don't want to be clean. And they don't want to get out of the pig pen. Secondly, here's how God does it. The Holy Spirit in us has a goal. He is making us into the likeness of Christ. This is Romans 8, that God is conforming us to the likeness of his Son, whom he loves. The Father delights to see his children more and more looking like his Son. And so to accomplish that, he sent his Spirit who resides within us upon salvation and whose goal then is to work within us to make the attitudes and the actions of our life increasingly like those of Christ, the Holy Son of God. It's the Spirit. He convicts us. He teaches us. He's the the anointing that he said earlier in chapter 2. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. It's another one of these things we don't begin to realize how precious, how precious it is to be the tabernacle of God and to have the Spirit of God dwelling within us spiritually. What a wonderful thing that is, Christian. I'm, as I say, as I, as I preach God's Word, I can know that the Spirit that is within you wants you to understand the Word He inspired which is so cool. And if you're getting it, it's not because I'm preaching it well. It's because the Spirit is doing His work within you. And the fruit of that then is you leave here not going, well, I'm glad that was done. But going, I want to live that out. I want that to shape me. I want to conform my life to that. That is the response of a Christian who has the Spirit within them. And that happens all day, every day. Third, a third way that God keeps us from continuing in sin if we are his children is that he disciplines us. He disciplines us. I see I, there's, some, there's some kids here and some kids here, probably kids in the, in the auditorium. Can I hear from any child that likes it when mom and dad discipline them? I hear Silence. No children like discipline, do they? Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. In other words, if I get in the mud and I stay there, I'm mixing metaphors here, but hang with me. If I get in the mud and I stay there, One of two things is going to happen. 
either the Father is going to come and is going to discipline me in a manner that gets me out of the mud, or if I stay there, it means I'm not his son. And if I'm not his son, I'm not saved. Now that was a mixed metaphor, but did you get it? And here we see God's commitment to saving us. Think of it. Your heavenly father is way more committed to your salvation than you are. And when you or my attitude gets twisted and selfish and prideful, and that begins to show itself in damaging actions to myself or to others, and as I resolve in my heart, I'm going to stick with this, God comes. And he has all the resources that he needs to get our attention, doesn't he? And to, through a little bit of trouble or through a little bit of trial or through some other kind of means, to wean our hearts off of the desire for sin and to get our hearts back to desiring what he wants in our life. And you might be here and you are under the discipline of Almighty God. And you're like, take away the discipline. God, remove the discipline from my life. Why would God do that? It's just starting to have its good effect. You're turning to him in prayer. Rather, embrace it. How about this? Say, God, whatever you're teaching me in this, I want to learn it fully. I don't want to run from it. I want to embrace it as painful as that is. That's James, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. How do we, why can we do that? Because we know that our Heavenly Father is doing something with it. He's keeping us from continuing in a life and a pattern of sin. We're His children. He loves us. And here's the fourth. God works through means to keep us from ongoing bondage to sin. And He's got all kinds of means to do that. Let me just give you some. The Word of God is one way that He keeps our hearts sensitive to what His will is. We have, uh, we have the church. One of the functions of the church is that we are in relationship with one another. We are looking out for one another. And the Bible calls us to lovingly admonish one another when we see one of, we see one of us that's going down a path. To step in and say, you're being stupid. You're being spiritually stupid. You realize where you're going here. If this keeps going, you're going to have X, Y, and Z that's going to happen to you. Do you realize you're out of the will of God? And Matthew 18 describes how that is supposed to bring about change. But what do you say about somebody who says, I don't give a rip what you think, and I don't give a rip what the church thinks, and don't even quote Bible verses to me. I'm going this direction. You can't turn me from it. What we can say about somebody like that is, over time, the more they stay, the longer they stay, the less likely they're a sheep. That's what it means. And so God, in his grace, uses means to get our attention before we resolve to stay habitually in that sin, before that sin becomes a pattern in our life, a besetting sin in our life. God brings all kinds of things. I'll bet you can think of times in your life, can't you, Christian, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, where you got thinking one way about something, or you fell into a a particular temptation, and it was beginning to become kind of almost like an obsession in your life. You didn't just do it once, you did it three times, and then 30 times, and 
So, and, and on that path you're going, but then all of a sudden something happened or somebody came to you or God hit you over the head with a sermon of some kind. You're listening to the radio and Moody Radio's on and all of a sudden, boom, we hear that often. Something God does to, to change your way of thinking. And you look back at that and you think, man, if I'd have kept on that path, who knows where I would have been? I will tell you, hell. Hell. The Bible does not give assurance of salvation to anyone who is resolved to remain in a pattern of sin and does not care about the will of God. That is a perilous place to be. And that's a hard thing to say. Because we have friends and we have loved ones and we have people from our past who've made profession of faith here or had this experience here, but there has been a long-term resolved pattern away from the will of God. In the end, you know what? We're not the judge. We're not the judge. God is the judge. But as a friend of mine said, we are called to be fruit inspectors. We'll leave the judging to God, but we can look at the fruit. And we're called to do so. So what do we say about so-and-so who claims to be a Christian and yet they did such and such? What do we say about them? If all genuine Christians will not continue to sin when so-and-so gets involved in such-and-such, time will tell. If they in the future turn from that sin, we go, oh, that, that looks more like a sheep than a pig. But if they remain in the mud, Over time, we more confidently say, apparently the Spirit of God is not within them. They are not children of God. We also can say this, finally, from this passage, is that like father, like son, is true on the other side as well. It's true spiritually in salvation, but the passage talks about another kind of father, Right? It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So we all, in the end, eventually resemble our Father. The question is whether it is the Lord, the Holy One, or it is uh, the devil who has been in the mud a long time and wants to have as many people in the pig pen as he possibly can. Whose son are we? Finally, if you're here and you're saying to yourself, I'm in the mud. I am in the mud. And I've been here a very long time. What do I do? How do I clean up? Here's what you do. You trust in the one who got in your mud for you. And who died. His name is Jesus. And his blood, the Bible says can wash us clean. And you can experience the saving cleansing that comes by faith in Jesus like so many of us have. Again, there's no bragging in that at all. This is God's grace. And he offers it freely to every sinner who will repent and turn and trust and believe you will be saved. So turn to Christ in faith. Trust in Him. 
and you will experience the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. And then you'll enjoy being a sheep. It's good being a sheep. It's better. Muddy at times, sadly. But it's sure nice wanting to be clean and to finding that with God. And all the sheep said, Bah. Let's stand together for prayer. Heavenly Father, we just quietly now in this moment want to lay our hearts before you. We know that you know us as we are. There is no sense pretending, being religious, spiritually or mentally right now, hiding behind the little props that we, uh, that we have that make us feel better or cover our guilty conscience. God, I pray that we would just come before you as we are right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would stoke a desire for all of us to be clean and to trust. Give faith, I pray, that all here may be saved. And I want to ask a couple questions now in a, in a spirit of prayer. Is there a besetting sin in your life? You play with it. You obsess over it. You hide it. And you think it won't do any damage at all. This passage calls you to do something about that. Either to evidence yourself to be a sinner in need of salvation, and I would encourage you to believe, or a Christian who is violating his nature, and your Heavenly Father wants you to repent. If that's you right now, I'd like to pray for you. And just as a kind of evidence of that, would you just slip your hand up right now? If that is you, I'd like to pray for you right now. Just slip that hand up. Thank you. God, you know the hands here, and you know the hearts. We pray that you would do your good work. And I pray for those that uh, have lifted their hands, and perhaps others within have done so. God, I pray that you would do your fatherly work unto salvation and sanctification and that you would make us clean. Restore right desires within us. Renew our minds. And God, I pray that we would not trifle around with sin, uh, but that we would confess it, own it, and find forgiveness from it. Thank you that you are this heavenly Father to us. We love you so very much. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.